Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. A longtime University of Tennessee agronomist and one of 43 no-till legends selected in 2017 by the no-till farmer editors, John Bradley served for 14 years as head of the University of Tennessee's Milan Ag Experiment Station. Among the pioneers working with no-till cotton, he's shown thousands of growers how to earn large payoffs with a wide variety of no-till crops. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with John about his experiences directing the annual midsummer Milan No-Till Field Day and how they developed just the right combination of industry and research that enticed thousands of growers to come out to their Tennessee fields in the middle of July. They also discuss how no-till revolutionized agriculture, the role John played in developing systems for no-till cotton, and why it was a hard sell, understanding the economics of no-till, and much more. Without further ado, here are Frank Lesseter and John Bradley. Let's start with where you grew up. I grew up in Tennessee in Hardin County, which is uh, county seat Savannah, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I graduated in 1968 and joined the Navy. Did four years with the Navy, having a tour of Vietnam also, and came back after that and uh, went to undergraduate school at the University of Tennessee Martin. After that, I went to work for the University of Tennessee Extension Service as a livestock specialist and did 4-H work for, for a while. Okay. Then after uh, I had the opportunity to go to an all-row crop county, of course I had a, uh, my bachelor's degree was in animal science. That was uh, really the path I wanted to take, but uh, it didn't work out that way. So I went to an all-row crop county the very northwest corner of Tennessee, across the Mississippi River from uh, uh, Carrollsville, Missouri, and near the right on the Kentucky line, and it was a it was a Delta County. It was all Delta soils, which was new to me. I was raised in what we call uh, the rolling hills of West Tennessee, and so that was a, a whole another learning curve farming experience there. So I, I was in that county seven years as an extension agent and uh, caught on real well and actually that's where started doing some no-till and I can tell you a little more history about no-till but actually started doing that and working with uh, the late Tom McCutcheon who was sure. in the Milan experiment station at the time. He actually had a family farm in that area and so he would come up and visit and I would took an interest in no-till through him and uh, then I had the opportunity to go be director of the Milan Experiment Station at Milan, Tennessee, where I spent the, the next 14 years. This is after Tom retired, right? Tom actually had an untimely death uh, okay. about with uh, cancer in 1983, and it was very happened very quickly. Like I said, I, I applied for the job and had that opportunity. He had gotten no-till started there. 
and uh, felt like I was was a good person to fall in there, and the university did too. So yeah, uh, I'm old enough to remember Tom. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're kind of you're kind of like me. I was a dairy science major at Michigan State, and I ended up in the row crop area. I, uh, I didn't realize I didn't realize that, but it kind of blows people's minds. It was a natural, and I've always said if you have a good uh, biology chemistry type right. background, you know, some general ag things, you can go any direction. You right. Want to. right. Let's go back to your early days with in the county. You said that you got interested in no-till. Well, growing up on the farm, my father was what I would call an innovator. He, he had gone to college and majored in also in animal science or animal husbandry, they called it then. Mm-hmm. But he was always very progressive and tried new things and all. And I remember in high school, FFA, I think it was about 1966, I think I was about 16 years old, I had a corn project, 10 acres of corn. And I remember we worked the field up conventionally, and believe it or not, I used to run a tractor with a moldboard plow, <laughs> moldboard it, disc it down, and then planted it, and then used uh, atrazine, and I'm not sure what the grass herbicide was, and then we didn't cultivate it, um, or as I grew up saying, plow it, didn't cultivate it any, and um, I remember the neighbors at the little country store would say your granddaddy would roll over in his grave if he knew you were plowing that corn. <laughs> and it ended up making 150 bushels of corn, which doesn't wow. sound like much. In 1966, that was a lot of corn. <laughs> right. So that may be my kind of start of, of no-till because I realized you didn't have to plow or cultivate in season to make a crop. Right. The equipment we had at the time, we had a 135 Massey Ferguson, and we also sure. had my granddaddy's first old 1943 Ford, which I still have and have restored. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what we were doing with this two-row equipment. We did have a, a new Massey Ferguson planter to go with the tractor, but anyway, we, it was a uh, relatively small operation back then. Tell me about your uh, 14 years at Milan. Milan, uh, of course, Tom McCutcheon had gotten things started there. And basically in West Tennessee, we he started looking at less tillage and no-till especially. We, we didn't go through that transition. but went straight to, to no-till because of the mm-hmm. tremendous soil erosion. At that time, in the late 70s, early 80s, West Tennessee, the area made about 21 counties, had the highest, one of the highest erosions in the nation. We were losing an average of 14 tons of soil per acre per year. Wow. And we had a lot of uh, fields that were losing up to 80 tons, like two dump truck loads. Mm-hmm. And there was a soil conservation movement at the time. Uh, it was called SOS, Save Our Soil. And I remember a field day late, maybe early 1980s or 80s, 1979 in that era where they had taken a demo farm and gone in and terraced and they had uh, done a lot of ag engineering structural things to cut down. Well, I remember asking at the time at that field day what it cost to to just basically go in and build all these structures and it was something like $1,700 an acre and I thought, well, that's two or three times what the land's worth at that time. (laughs) People can't do that. 
So I think Tom had a small demonstration of uh, no-till there, but we knew that no-till would solve the greatest problems unless you just had a gully going through the field that you could slow the water down. So that's really how it got started from uh, our need to control soil erosion in our topsoil. We have lust soils, which were windblown in, uh, in about an average of six six to eight inches of it across those 21 counties. Uh, there, there's some that was much, much deeper on the bluff of the Mississippi where that bluff caught it. I mean, there was sure. actually some topsoil there of the lust soils from out west, probably 100 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those farmers had let it wash away because they had another foot under that <laughs> to, to to farm with. But most of us didn't have that luxury. So that's how it, how it really got started. I remember, too, that we realized very early that it was not just a method of planting. It was a system that you had to look at weed control. And that was, a, that was one of the biggest first challenges. We didn't have the herbicides that we had. Right. We had to to take what we had and fit them in to the program. Uh, of course, there was all these fears, well, insects are going to be worse. Diseases are going to be worse. We don't have the planting equipment. And all those were valid things, but I looked at them as how this barrier, okay, let's say weed control is a barrier. How do we go over, under, around, or how do we address that? So every barrier or every objection that came up, I would take that and see what tools or modifications we needed to do to overcome the, that barrier. So that's, mm-hmm. that was kind of my attitude, and then put that together as a system. Well, it looked to me like um, the people back in Knoxville were doing more scientific research where at Milan you were doing practical ideas that people could put to work immediately. Well, exactly, and that's that's what my next comment was going to be is we always took pride that we were very practical and very applied, and that commonly comes from my my raising, if you will, as well as uh, farmers can identify with that really well. And, And when we would find out something that worked, maybe in a small randomized replicated plot. And, and Tom started this, we would take it to the field. We had four row planters in. And we would take it to a field and with a, the four row planter we had available and what a atta- few attachments we had at that time, we would do it on a 20, 30, 40 acre basis. And farmers around here really appreciated that because we had the same equipment as they did. Some some of them had bigger sure. equipment, you know, six and eight row equipment, but they really appreciated that we were doing it real equipment and not something we had made in the shop or some engineer, and I'm not knocking engineers, <laughs> you know, not something that they had dreamed up that wasn't going to be practical and applied. But right. one of the other big successes that made no-till so successful in our area was industry. We let industry come in. At that time, it wasn't common for universities to let industry come in to an experiment station and help help lead. Mm-hmm. But by letting industry and working very, very closely with them, we got herbicides as they first came out. We had uh, companies like, of course, Alice Chambers with one of the first no-till planters. I'm, yeah. uh, John Deere and all those saw the Again, back to the practical and applied work that they could, they would come and assist us or send us things that they thought would might work, and then we would 
we try them. We tried coulters. We tried residue managers. That's how we got to working so closely with Howard Martin. He came sure. down. From, and a lot of what we learned, we learned from Western Kentucky. You know, we we became more famous, I guess, if you will. But we got a lot of ideas out of Western Kentucky and out of Princeton. And, and they were really, in the beginning, I think, ahead of West Tennessee. We learned a lot from them and then adapted. The one the one crop we had that Western Kentucky didn't have and where I spent a lot of my career was working with no-till cotton. It was the most erosive crop we grew in West Tennessee. And I can remember when it was pretty much the the farm policy on a farm production basis that cotton would get cultivated or plowed every week. Wow. And we would get these downpours of rain. And I can actually remember that farmers often had to take track dozers in and fill in some of the gullies before they could run a cotton picker or harvest that cotton. That's how wow. bad the erosion was. So, and cotton is the least amount of residue, and a lot of our fields had been farmed in cotton for literally over 150 years. So we had less residue, and that's when we started trying to rotate and uh, work cover crops in back way back. Well, this work that you did on no-till cotton pretty much pioneered the idea of no-till cotton across the whole South. I, I think so. Uh, if there's a claim to fame, that's, that's, that was our biggest. Because uh, I've always said no-till corn is easiest falling off a log. There's not much to that. And soybeans are a big seed, so they're, they're yeah. pretty easy. We And we used to double crop a lot, but cotton is a... Uh, as cotton farmers say, cotton comes up wanting to die. <laughs> so, so it's a very uh, tedious crop to get started. And, and cotton farmers just couldn't imagine, you know, planting in residue or planting in uh, cover crops and that sure. sort of thing. But they had worked, literally worked the soil structure so much that they were having crusting problems. And, you know, a lot of the problems they were having with getting cotton just to get a population or a stand were uh, man-made, as I say. Uh, they were, it, was a, it was a vicious cycle is what it was. No-till cotton actually worked really well, but I think it was one of the hardest ones for people to get their mind wrapped around. Uh, it was a hard sell, so to speak. Well, if they think they got to cultivate every week, there's a hard sell right there. <laughs> You were talking earlier about practical equipment and everything in Milan, and uh, Roy Appaquist from Great Plains told me that when he got the idea for no-till drill, one of the first times he took it was to Milan. He said, I came home from Milan with a lot more ideas on how I could fix this drill than what I went there with. <laughs> yeah, the, the drills that came in there were all conventional drills at first. Right. High was one of the first, and Great Plains, and uh, we had, I can't remember, Crustbuster, but they were all conventional. A lot of them were hanging weights on them, and and uh, when we put them in the in the field to demonstrate them at the field day, it really showed farmers, and there were literally thousands of farmers watching these drills. And I think you're right that a lot of the manufacturers learned a lot there. Yeah, he told uh, me not only that Roy did, but he said John Ty was another one that was there and learned yeah. a great deal. And <laughs> yeah. He said, we went to a hotel one night and we're in the swimming pool and started talking about this and wondered what we were getting into. <laughs> <laughs> 
just having the equipment there, I think at one time, I can't remember all the numbers, but we had like 21 different pieces of planting equipment in a 50-60-acre field, and we had them actually, they weren't just static. We had them plant, let's say, 50 feet at a time and pull up, and we organized the whole thing till they all started the tractors so they could all talk. They moved 50 feet, and then they shut down, and then each... Uh, manufacturer could talk about their equipment. Yeah. And I don't remember the piece of equipment. It was one that came down here, and basically it, it would have made a good hay rake. They had never <laughs> used it to plant in uh, double crop where we had had wheat straw sure. and all. And uh, it was just raking up. It was, it was really embarrassing. You know, I think they learned a lot, too. Uh, but uh, I'll never forget, I mentioned Howard Martin earlier. He came every year. And he probably did as good a job, and people learned more probably from him than than anybody that demoed in the mm-hmm. in the uh, demonstration field that we had set up. Yeah, talk some more about the field day. But one of the things I always remember about this mid July field day is it was about like a hundred degrees. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we actually advertised as the hottest day of the year, but again, being in the South and around cotton country, there wasn't a good time to have it uh, because they were always spraying or um, plowing, or there was always something to do with cotton. Right. And uh, so cotton usually has done most of its thing, if you will, by the 1st of August to the middle of August, so we, we tried to plan that field day, but one of the, the, Tom McCutcheon actually started, I didn't do the first one, I've had people said, well, you started it, no, I I made it, made it bigger and better, I think, but uh, <laughs> uh, they had actually had two of them before I, I came in and did the third one, and had about 500 people, well, the one thing that I've always believed in, if you have something and you believe in it, you promote it. And right. that's what we did. We promoted, we got organized, we had uh, agencies by that, I mean um, NRCS, all the agent, extension, uh, research, all that. And then we had industry, we had uh, let them display, we had them demonstrate. We, as far as I know, it was one of the first field days in our area, anyway, that they'd ever let industry come in and have booze and kind of like the Farm Progress show. Right, right. And, and so that was very, very novel. It really shook the university up, too. But, and then the other thing is we, we had research. Everything we told or showed at the field day was research-based, and then we right. had it on a on a field basis, but back to what I was talking about, we promoted it. Yeah. We had the bumper stickers. We had back when we had 35 millimeter slides. We had all the extension agents talking about it. I did a lot of meetings talking about no tilling. I always promoted it, and uh, we we I don't remember all, but I remember the year we went over 10,000. Uh, we actually had 14,000 people. And we'd have anywhere from 20 to 40 states represented. We'd have a lot of people come in from foreign countries. I mean, we had um, bus loads. We'd have it like a soil conservation district from from another state like Mississippi or 
Arkansas, and they'd bring a uh, what I call a Greyhound bus load of people in. Right. It was hot. We fed everybody. We had uh, a cat, local cater that provided all the food, and then we started. The Milan didn't have any claim to fame, so we started that, and we added. We even had a no-till uh, beauty scholarship pageant. We had a tractor pull. We had a cotton fashion show because some of the women said, well, you don't have anything here for sure. women. So we uh, started that. And we've added about 12, I think, amenities that surrounding the community. So it became a community thing that everybody volunteered. We had the FFA parking the cars. I don't know if you remember, but our parking lot was laid off with no-till soybeans. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> and it was funny to watch people, Frank, that they didn't want to run over the beans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where we had the each wow. individual space marked. Of course, it was going to be destroyed after the field day. Yeah, but, I ran a know. picture of this in my history book, and that I remember it, it, it talked like no parking stalls, and they looked like stalls because you had yeah. the, you could put a pickup yeah. between those single rows. Exactly. And, uh, we never got rained out. People always said, what are you going to wow. do for a rain day? I said, the, the show's going to go on. <laughs> now, we had a couple of afternoon thunderbursts, uh, but we never we never got rained out. Right. Yeah, um, so, uh, yeah I also, you know, you were talking about this uh, community getting involved. You, had a, you ended up with a museum there, too, didn't you? Tom McCutcheon's hobby was collecting old farm influence, and mm-hmm. he had some old chicken house, local old chicken houses that a farmer let him store this stuff. Just <laughs> hundreds, literally hundreds of old uh, farm equipment and, and tools and items from this area. So we formed a museum association and they got the legislature to actually build a, a West Tennessee Agriculture Museum. We wanted right. to name it after Tom McCutcheon, but we couldn't get that done. But he was the primary person behind that. Well, we, we had you talk at our National No-Tillage Conference a few times, and I pulled out an old article here, and it was some of the research you were doing on coulters. You said you only need coulters 50 to 75% of the time, and then it goes on to say that you started out as a proponent of cast iron wheels, and then you uh, got to where you thought spoke press wheels were best. Yeah, spokes hadn't been invented when we had cast iron. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and uh, a lot of times people could take a, a double-disc opener planter like a John Deere or White or Alice Chamber and, and do a good job. And one of the things we learned in no-till farming is adjusting that culture. You don't just set them and, and run them deep or run them shallow. So at that time, and then as... Uh, one of the things we were doing, we, we tended to plant too wet, as I'm sure you've seen and experienced. Yep, so and a lot of people did that this year. Yeah, and we were pushing that soil back together with the cast iron or just the rubber ones, and it was it was bothering our stand. So, and I'm not really sure who came out with the first spoke. I know Sunco had one. Howard Martin ended up coming out with one. Uh, Dawn, I think they had the first one. Some of these companies I don't even think are in existence anymore. Yeah, I don't remember Suncoast still around or not. No. I'll have to tell you a story about, I guess it was in about 1984 or 83, that I was asked to speak at the National Ag Equipment Manufacturers Association in Nashville. 
there was a lot of I don't know how many people were there. It was and it was all manufacturers of anywhere from plow points to coulters to sure. uh, just iron. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember telling them that I thought by the year two thousand that ninety percent of the farming would be in a conservation tillage or no till. It really upset a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, really right. upset a lot of people. And I had uh, manufacturers of plow points coming up and said, you're trying to put me out of business. And I said, no, but you're going to have to change your business, I think. And I remember the Yatter people were there, and that's what they did. They yep. changed how, what they did, how they did business. And a lot of those guys did go out of business because they didn't change. Yeah, that was probably the FEMA group, the Farm Equipment Manufacturers Association, which is still going strong today. We'll rejoin Frank and John in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Common Cornheads, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new corn head when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Calmer Cornheads BT Chopper Stock Rolls? As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor sharp knives, BT Choppers cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your corn head problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit their website at calmercornheads.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. In 1991, I went to John Bradley's summer field day at the University of Tennessee at the Milan location. One of the interesting things I saw was skip roll soybeans being used for parking. After harvesting small grains in June, the staff no-tills double crop soybeans in an interesting pattern. During the station's late July no-till field day, this single roll, skip roll pattern of double crop no-till soybeans marks parking stalls for visitors. The idea is not only helps promote no-till, but serves a valuable purpose while making parking stalls in the recently harvested small grain fields. They were planted with a single row no-till planter, and there was a row across the front of the where the trucks or cars could park and then along the sides. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and John Bradley. Well, one of the other things I pulled out was uh, you didn't seem to have any yield loss with no-till. Not significant. Uh, the one claim and promise that I always made is, you know, if you'll follow the proven guidelines that we've learned, is the goal is to have equal or greater yields. And, of course, the greater sure. yields would hopefully come from moisture conservation and things like that. And I'm not saying we never suffered a yield loss, but it wasn't very significant. I know no-till wheat. That was always a couple of bushels, maybe three bushels, under conventional wheat. But then again, if you look at the economics of it, it was it was more economical. And Frank, that's something else I did with the university that when we started, I thought this this is not going to work unless we can prove the economics of it. Sure. So that we started a movement within the University of Tennessee that we wouldn't do a project on an experiment station unless we had an ag economist on the work plan. 
Okay. And oh, I actually, great. Got, I actually got that through the university. It, it surprised <laughs> me. <laughs> and that actually got ag economists out in the field at the, on the turn row in the tractors or combines, and they actually ran uh, the economics of the savings and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And at first, there wasn't a lot of savings because we were spending so much on $75 gallon Roundup, if you remember. Right, right. But anyway, as that became different, the ag economics showed up. And I think that's what really, not just soil erosion, I think it was the economics that really put no-till on the map. I'm talking about all over the country. People realized the equipment that they were using and the fuel they were burning and the time they were spending. Right. Well, I, I've, you you were definitely right because I always thought from the beginning it's going to be a hard sell for no-till on saving soil. Does it do it? Yeah. Absolutely. But if the guys have got to see the economics to do this. Yeah, the, and it's like I used to tell people, your pocketbook drives what you do, and it pretty much that's the way the world turns. Right. And thank goodness we had a, a good ag economist. He got in there and improved where it was actually more economical. But I think the, the the benefits to the farmer, too, that I've experienced, I've had farmers come to me and say, my dad never saw me play a baseball game. Or mm-hmm. He says, I get to see my, he says, we don't work seven days a week anymore. We barely, we work five. We don't work Saturdays unless we need to plant or need to harvest. I see all my kids games or ballet or whatever their children are doing. I've had many, many testimonies from people that came up to me like that. It's how literally how no-till farming changed their lives. Yeah. They didn't have to stay home and cultivate cotton every week. No. <laughs> I mean, and that, that really makes you feel good. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, you know, I was always a little hesitant to tell about the touchy-feely things like earthworms and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this that's come to pass. I had a, a farmer down in Texas, and Texas is the hardest sell of any place I ever worked. <laughs> it, it was tough down there. Uh, but anyway, I had a I had a guy, and he said, I, and he was down at Harlingen, and it was dry land, and he actually flew me down there and we looked and we set him up on a program and he did it and stuck with it but he he called me about eight i went down there four or five years in a row and in the spring but he called me after he'd been no telling about eight years and he said i'm thinking he said i'm thought of you all morning i said how is that he says well i've been taking soil samples and every time i put my probe in the ground i come up with an earthworm (laughs) <laughs> when you came, he said, when you first came down here, you mentioned that, and I thought you were crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's really interesting how you have an impact on people's lives, and sometimes sometimes it's the little things that uh, come out. It's just like raising children. Sometimes it's the little things that make the biggest difference. And you never know what's going to impress them. I'm sure you had this too. Uh, you you go to a meeting and you make a. Uh, a statement and you you really don't think that much about it and four five six seven years later people come up and say i'll never forget what you said and you think my goodness you know i didn't know i was making an impact like that we were talking earlier earlier about the cotton cultivation one thing we took a step in doing i uh, i guess it was about mid 
90s that the, the hooded sprayer came out. Sure. And that helped, that helped cotton a lot because we realized we could grow cotton without cultivating if we could control the weeds. And, of course, that was before Roundup Ready Cotton or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And they were a tremendous impact on the cotton of keeping the cultivator. And I dare say there are very, very, very few cultivators left in cotton country, except maybe out west. In right. Well, looking at herbicides, it's kind of interesting to see how we've changed, and then we kind of gone back to what we had in the yeah. seven in the seventies. We had Paraquat, which kind of got replaced by Roundup, but we had a lot of Princep on corn, and we were using Banvil then, which was is exactly. a dicamba product today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people that can't remember when dicamba was pretty common in corn. Right, and, right. Uh, I remember something. I don't know if y'all ever did this in your area, but we actually put down on a band pre-emerge two quarts of 2,4-D per acre on corn. Okay. And it would hold it about two or three weeks from a pre-emergence standpoint till we could get in and cultivate the corn. But... I don't know if that was ever labeled or not, but we I remember doing it. But in cotton, we found out we had a lot of herbicides that carry over that you could surface apply and didn't have to incorporate them. Yeah. Uh, Cotteran, Caprol, uh, those. And then, and then the uh, grass herbicides, the contact uh, over-the-top grass herbicides came out in the mid-'80s also, the post, the fusillate the select, those came out, and that was tremendous help with our Johnson grass problem, especially in cotton and soybeans. Well, it must have, must have been a big change. <clears throat> Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think one of the big herbicides early on with cotton that had to be incorporated was Treflon. Oh, yeah. I think I think Treflon, um, it was probably, it was probably, except for maybe atrazine, at the time, was the most widely used product uh, for cotton and soybeans. And mm-hmm. if you remember, I know you do, in the way that, because my daddy was a chemical salesman, too, and he, I remember going to meetings with him when I was a kid, and they, they'd talk about you have to disc it two different ways. Yeah, and that's right. Apply yeah. Treflan and disc, 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 disc. And I think that that was causing a tremendous amount of erosion in West Tennessee, plus it he got in the habit of this. We got a disc, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, after Milan, you kind of become the promoter of no-till cotton when you went to work for Monsanto across the South, didn't you? Yeah, that's that's why they uh, basically how I got that opportunity uh, was to promote conservation in no-till cotton. And I went to work for them in 97, and that's when their Bogard cotton, and that, that was the year that Roundup Ready cotton came out. And that very much complemented the weed control for cotton. Of course, from Monsanto's standpoint, the more they would get, they could get the burn down, and they'd get the in-crop mm-hmm. uh, sale on the Roundup. So I don't know which really promoted what, but it was a huge tool. The Roundup Ready cotton was a huge tool to promote and uh, get no-till cotton started in places that, you know, it would have never gotten started, I don't think, before. So there's, it's just amazing the technology. And like you 
mentioned, uh, we've gone back to a lot of our old pre-emerge herbicides with the, the weed resistance. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think we'd ever have Roundup-resistant weeds based on its mode of action, but mm-hmm. some weeds got around it. Yeah. There's lots of controversy these days about glyphosate, and, you know, there's some lawsuits going on. What would happen to no-till if it got sharply curbed in the use? We figure out a way well, to still no-till? I think we could figure it out. I think we've got enough to do it, but the expense on it and the amount of trips and, and all, we I mean, we did it before Roundup Ready. We sure. did it for several years, 15 years before. So we And we've still got most of that chemistry. The expense, the time, time, and and all that, it it could be done. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, we've got some people that are doing no-till that are not using Roundup because of the expense of the seed. A few, not many. Most of them yeah. go back. Uh, because Roundup, no matter what weeds are resistant, still kills more weeds than any herbicide on the market. I've thought about that. You know, I said, you know, we did it before. I've had people say, well, we're going to have to give no-till up because we've got Roundup-resistant ways. And I said, well, no, really you don't, but I can see. And, you know, we've got probably two generations of farmers now that have never used residual herbicides. It's all been contact. Yeah. My son did some cotton farming back in the late 90s, well, when Roundup Ready came out. And uh, he asked me one day, he said, are you ever going to teach me how to plow? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he farmed for several years. He Anyway, he went to work for Monsanto, which is Bairdale, but uh, he farmed for several years and never uh, never used anything but Roundup. Right, right. Well, we got some new Liberty Links, got some possibilities for some people. There are some options, so some alternatives. The recent Census of Agriculture, which looked at 2012 and it looked at 2017, shows the leading state for no-till is Tennessee, and they say 79% of the acres in Tennessee are no-tilled. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, And and I think Kentucky's next and probably North Carolina. I I actually did a program, or I've done some talks, and got those statistics out and it's to comment on that no-till worked best where you had leadership mm-hmm. and you had a, an individual or individuals that led the cause well i'm trying to think of the guy up in illinois oh Ken, george mckibben yeah and then uh jim kinsella yeah. yeah jim kinsella too i was really but every place that you had uh, Randall Reader, new, well, all your no-till innovators that you honored last sure. year, every place there was one of those or a good local extension agent or a good farmer leader, it stuck. It it was there. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think where we're losing acres in places, you know, the leaders are gotten old, retired, and they don't have the, the person there, you might say, cheering them on and helping them with the answers. So, right. You know, you you hate to see this. Plus, I think it's gone down in places. I think we've got a generation now that are kind of on a, if you will, a power kick. This younger, the 20 and 30-something-year-olds that are farming, mm-hmm. they like the big equipment. Uh, <laughs> I know I've, I've got some uh, some of their dads call me and says, my son's wanting to buy this, wanting to buy that. <laughs> 
And I said, you don't need it. And I said, if y'all can buy it, but you don't need it to do what you're doing. He said, well, that's that's what I thought. Right. And well, I still work with some farmers that have their sons call me. He said, call John Bradley and see what he thinks about this. Well, that's great. That's great. And you know, he'll call me back and said, I, you told him exactly what I knew you'd tell him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it meant something when they heard it from you, not from Dad. It's interesting going back in the 70s when we started because some of the real progress got made in like states like Tennessee and Kentucky, but also Iowa and Nebraska and Ohio are examples of states where the agronomists didn't think much about no-till, but the ag engineers liked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paul Jassa at Nebraska and some people... uh, you know, and there were there were agronomists that hated the idea. You know, and it, oh yeah, and we had plant pathologists who thought well, plant pathologists were the worst. They yeah, said, you know, entomologists were another group, and there were yeah. just a lot of naysayers. Right. Um, the University of Tennessee was not behind the no, the, the administration was not behind this. They, uh, Tom McCutcheon actually had to put it on the back side of the station and kind of hide it. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, when I took over, they said, you're not going to keep doing this field day, are you? And I said, I most certainly am. Yeah. I said, if we've got to stop that, you're, I'm not the man for the job. So. Yeah, well, that's great. <laughs> and then after it grew so big, they got kind of proud of it then, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, cover crops a big part of no-till in Tennessee or not? Yeah. You know, we're still working things out. We did a lot of cover crop back in the late 70s, early 80s. And what I found out from kind of a psychological point, it was hard enough to get farmers to stop tilling. But when you add the layer of cover crops on there, it was just almost more than they could do to change mm-hmm. from no cover crops to no tillage to cover crops and no tillage. So <laughs> uh, I, I thought the no-till was probably more important at the time. But we've had some, as you hear about, farmers going 100% cover crops on every acre and any being too wet, too, really too wet, some of the springs we've had, and they've had some disasters. So I think it's, uh, I'm for them and I'm for a balance in there, but I'm, I don't know if I was farming, if I'd put it on every acre every year, I'd probably get some kind of rotation. Right, right. Some of these people really believe in these nine mixers or 14 species mix. And I think I've got, I've got a little talk. I've had some states call me back to do that, and I've tried to be very practical and applied and get it down to two or three, no more than three or four, really, in the ones that I think work the best and, and that sort of thing. From Again, from a practical and applied basis, I'm not saying the nine mixes and all that don't in, in best, but I think you can not complicate it and accomplish the same thing with two, three, or four. Right. Well, if you want to cut your costs, cereal, rye, or oats, or even bin around the wheat, they do it all by itself. Yeah. So you did a lot of work on double crop, the wheat or barley ahead of soybeans. Why isn't double crop caught on more? A lot of it is its own rented land, and when you figure the the shared rented land back and a lot of that was (laughs) the economics weren't there, Mm -hmm. and they've gone to the the high-tech wheat, which is great, you know, 100 bushel wheat, and uh, they're 
putting a lot more in inputs to it, and they're not as worried about the second crop. They were more worried about the soybean crop, uh, you know, back in the seventies and eighties. And uh, so I think that, I think it's just the intensity of trying to make as many bushels of beans, getting the planting date down. Mm-hmm. But we had farmer after farmer that were planting beans behind wheat and making within one or two bushels of what the full season were. I know some big farmers that kept up with that. So uh, I think it's got more to do with economics, low price of wheat and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. You're back home now. Tell me what you and your wife are doing now. I enjoy your Facebook posts. Well, like I said, I've had uh, had my, I, I was raised on a diversified farm, crops, livestock, but I've always had a love for, for cattle. And so I've always been able to live within about 90 miles of the farm. So I've always had cattle, but we decided about 17 years ago we were going to have a full-fledged cattle operation, one that supported itself. Mm-hmm. And so we started buying some farms, renting some farms, buying equipment, and building building a herd. And that's, that's what we've done. And we actually uh, met our goal about four or five years ago. We've We've been running 180 brood cows. We sell our beef direct to restaurants, to schools, to, to sure. homeowners, consumers, and that. For a, you know, it's like any of this. These niche markets are really where the money. We sell our our calves that we don't feed out through an alliance sale. So we we rotate. We do cover crops in our pastures. We intercede. I practice what I preach. <laughs> Still do a few talks and things like that, but it's it's fun reminiscing and seeing where we've been and how far we've come. Right, and, right. And uh, hopefully looking to the future. And you pray that you have played you and your magazine and publications and and uh, no till farming uh, conferences have played a huge huge role in promoting this. And, like I said earlier, if you if you believe in something, promote it. And yeah, you've, you've helped do that uh, through the years. Oh well, thank you, and I I I feel grateful, just like you, that we've had an impact. And I remember when I took this job and we started, I went home to see my dad, and he thought I was crazy. He thought, "What what is <laughs> what is wrong with you?" Uh, we I mentioned the, about the neighbors uh, telling me that my grandfather would roll over in his grave if he knew I wasn't playing on the farm. And mm-hmm. It really worried me because I, he's always, he died when I was two, but I, I could see the results of the farm <laughs> and what he put together. And it really bothered me. I mean, I lost, literally lost sleep over it. Yeah. And finally I thought, well, he was the first one in the, in the area to buy a tractor. He was the first one to use commercial fertilizer after World War II. He used the first hybrid corn. And I thought, no. He would be doing this, too, so I got over it pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. We have a, a couple examples over the years at the NOTO conference. Like, there was a um, there was a gentleman from Illinois, and I think he was probably 60 years old, and he came to the conference for a few years, and then he came with his son. And then one year he said to us, this is it, I'm not coming back anymore. And we said, why? He said, I've got my son convinced the no-to. And we're doing it. We're going to go all the way. And, and it's usually the son trying to talk the dad into doing it. But in this yeah. instance, it was the dad talking to the son. I go can ahead. tell a lot of stories about <laughs> dad or grandpa 
literally shaking their head or walking off or just they knew I was coming to the farm. They headed to the backside. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you mentioned about people calling you and their son wants to buy a big horsepower tractor. And I always remember we did something. We we had a big tractor at Farm Progress show, and I figured out if you ran a no-till planter behind it, it had the horsepower to do like a 180-row planter. But nobody was making a 180-row planter. <laughs> no, yeah. I had a few farmers that still wanted to buy big tractors, and I said, you're just wasting your horsepower. I said, it only needs a 150 or 180 to pull that planter or something like that. Right, right. Anyway, but it's it's been it's been very rewarding personally, and uh, I, I, it's been great seeing the change. You know, there's not many things you can do in life that made such a change or impact in about 30 years. Oh, I know. I'm proud of what we've done. And I am too, but but it takes usually longer than 30 years to change things. Right, and right. We did a complete agriculture revolution from plowing to no plowing in 30 years. Right. I'm not so sure that hybrid corn caught, caught on as fast as no-till has. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, but... You know, you think of a lot of the things that happened. It took longer than than thirty years, but I mean, in agriculture, you're dealing with the most conservative people, right? Uh, the the most biggest group that resists change. So it, it's it's been a tough, uh, been a, it's a, right. <clears throat> I know you've had a lot of, of people still shake their head and cross their arms and tell you it wouldn't work, but it right. does, right? Well, it used to be when back in the '70s we started out, and and uh, somebody would say, "Well, I, I can try no-till, but I know I'm going to have to plow after four or five yeah. years." <laughs> but and I said to these people, "Okay, go ahead, go ahead and see it, and see if you and if you have to plow, go ahead." But most of them never plowed. Yeah. After four or five years, they realized they didn't have to. Yeah, I've had people say, look, I've done this five years. Don't you think I need to plan? I said, give me a valid reason. I said, give right. me a valid reason. Right. Well, I just think you need to do it. And I think, no. And then, you know, we uh, Rakowski did all that work about carbon release when sure. you plowed. And, and we knew that was happening. We've got a guy in East Tennessee on the hills in Jefferson County that I helped get started no-tilling. And he has got his organic matter. This is on Tennessee soils, up to five percent. That's unheard of. Wow, good for him. Well, it looks to me on these Facebook posts when you're talking about hay and your wife's working harder than you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, she she was in the air conditioned tractor that day, and I was on the one uh, that's not. So anyway, she got to cool off quicker than I did. But uh, she's a, she, she can. I'll put her up against anybody in baling the most perfect bale of hay. She's. Uh, I don't know. She's pretty artistic, and she she wants that perfect bale of hay. And she can. We can drive down the road, and she can tell you every every bale of hay what kind of machine bailed it, whether it's a New Holland, a John Deere. <laughs> I read her Facebook post the other day, which she had to crawl up into the round baler yeah. for some problem. Yeah. Yeah. She's a pretty good rider too, isn't she? Yeah. Um, what what breed of cattle do you have? We're we're basically Angus. We do have some black and white faced brood cows, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, we, we're 
all all black except for the black white face. So we yeah. we stuck with Angus, and that's quality. And Angus does a huge job of promoting and yep, selling. Yeah, they sure market. do. That's right. A, that's a truly marketing success, in my yeah. opinion. I mean, that's what I grew up with. My grandfather had Hereford, but uh, I've had Angus ever since we were about I was about nine or ten years old. So that's that's probably partial to that. So of course, the right. breeds changed since then. Right. I so think, I think it consistently does have the the highest quality of of beef. Yeah. So what have we missed talking about that you would that we ought to talk about? I uh, I wish we had more people carrying on and doing more research. I know UT and I hate to fuss, but they're not doing a lot of no-till research and I I know farming has become more technology based now with mm-hmm. Uh, satellites and all that, and you can adapt all that. To, but there's still farmers that have issues with cover crops and planting into them and that sort of thing. And I, I wish we had more people continue the, not the research that's been done, but continue to research with the new technology that's out there, no-till. Because I, I don't want to ever see it go backwards. I think it's, it's been huge for this, this nation as a whole. Uh, if I if I handed you a hundred thousand dollars, what research would you want to do on no till right away? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I think it would involve being able to plant in in more uh cover crop situations because we've had some just downright failures mm-hmm. uh and, and I I don't know what needs to be done there. But that's that's a barrier right now. There's there's people abandoning cover crops because they can't you know they can't make it work, and most of those are on a large basis. But that that's one one issue that I yeah. I see that needs needs addressing. Uh, but it's amazing what how far the planters and and the drills especially have have come through the years. Right. Well, and then, and then we got GPS now, and for people who oh yeah who've wanted oh. to who've wanted to strip till, I mean, this is a great way you can pull in those berms you made on the fall and see right in the middle of them. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, you remember when we were using chains and when we used, oh yeah uh, phone markers and yeah we we literally almost had had our wives stand at the end of the field to guide back on it. Right, right. Uh, the marker arms, I remember at Milan, uh, we actually took some barbell weight and uh, bolted them on the, the disc markers on the, on mm-hmm. the four-row planter to tell where we'd been. Right. So uh, it, it was pretty crude back then, but we made it work. Yeah. Virginia Tech had some drills, which they had tram lines. And they would, yeah. they would adjust the drill as they turned around at the end of the field. To make the tram lines work. Mm-hmm. So today's tram lines are GPS. Yeah. Well, we've talked for about an hour. I think this has been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. There's. Uh, well, I appreciate you thinking of me, and it's. Uh, I, I don't get to talk a lot about it anymore. Well, I want to thank you very much for doing this for us. You are one of our no-till legends, and I think you get credit for a lot that's happened across the country and in Tennessee, and I think you had a great deal to do with no-till cotton across the whole South. So, John, thanks for doing this for us. I really well, thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, and thanks for remembering me, and uh, I appreciate the honors that 
you and the conference have bestowed on me through the years too. Okay. That, that was always great to be rewarded like that. And that wasn't the reason I was doing it, but uh, that that that's been nice. And I always enjoyed meeting other innovators there too. Right. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry about tillage practices in the U.S. When we analyzed the reduced tillage or minimum tillage data in the 2017 Ag Census, no state had more than 50% of its cropland being cropped with minimum tillage. Across the country, about one-third of the U.S. crop ground was farmed with reduced tillage or minimum tillage, one-third with no-till, and one-third with conventional tillage. But it's a different story with states who are still relying on intensive or conventional tillage such as moldboard plowing for the majority of their cropland. There are 13 states who still use intensive tillage on more than 50% of their cropland. Interesting, seven of those states are in the far western area of the country and include California where 70% of the ground is still farmed with multiple tillage trips. In the Great Plains area, Texas has 54% of its ground being farmed with intensive tillage. And in the Corn Belt, 51% of the Minnesota crop acreage is still farmed with some form of intensive tillage. Across the country, 28% of the U.S. cropland was farmed with intensive tillage or conventional tillage systems in 2017. While the no-till acreage continues to grow, there's certainly plenty of room for more acres moving to no-till. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and John Bradley for today's conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesnar and our entire staff here at Nettle Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>